Welcome to Lung Cancer Concert, the podcast of the International Association for the Study of Lung Cancer, a global organization dedicated to research and practice advances in thoracic oncology. You can find all our podcasts on SoundCloud and islc.org in the newsroom. I'm your host, Dr. Narjus Duma. Welcome to Lung Cancer Concert. I'm your host, Dr. Narjus Duma, a thoracic medical oncologist, and an honor today to have Dr. Ignatius Wu. Dr. Wu is a professor of medicine at the Chow Family Comprehensive Cancer Center at the University of California, Irvine School of Medicine. Dr. Wu, thank you for taking the time to join us today. Uh, thank you for the invitation. It's an honor to be on it, and uh, thank you again. So in order to have this conversation with you, we are going to address each other as first name. I extremely respect your long and very productive career, but I will talk to you as Ignatius, if that's okay with you. No, that's fine. That's fine. And uh, and I'll address you as Ignatius. Yeah, that goes too. And I go by NJ NJ. Okay, NJ is easier. (laughs) Yes, it is. I got that nickname many years ago and it's stuck because easier. So as we talk about your lung career, we would love to hear how do you find your way to lung cancer? First, clinically and second in research. So that's an excellent question. And I will bring you to my first mentor. This all started when I was in fellowship at uh, Visro Deaconess Medical Center. Uh, I was looking for a mentor, and I found uh, Dr. Dan Karp, who is now at MD Anderson. He was a great mentor. So we were doing upper aerodigestive tract tumors. Uh, so he was doing it. He was doing head and neck, esophageal, and lung cancer. And so I essentially joined his clinic. Halfway through my fellowship, he left for MD Anderson at that time. And so I continue my research under Dr. Mark Huberman, who is uh, still at Bethesda uh, Deaconess. I think he just retired. And then Balash Halmos was two years ahead of me in the fellowship training. So we worked on a protocol together. And, you know, that was the protocol that uh, we discussed before the recording uh, at the Vail uh, ACR research workshop. So I work on the... Uh, Gefitinib plus radiation in esophageal cancer. So that's how I started, mostly with uh, head and neck, esophageal, and lung cancer. And when I look for a job, UC Irvine has an opening for both a head and neck position and lung position. So I joined 2003. And doing both head and neck and lung about 50-50% uh, of the time. And then 2004, EGF mutation was reported in the Journal of Medicine. And then I you know, started gravitating to more lung and you know, joined the Lux Lung 2 project. And that's how I started the research on, uh, on uh, lung cancer. And now I, I'm exclusively about 95% uh, lung cancer and about 5% uh, thyroid cancer. And I don't treat the standard squamous cell head and neck cancer anymore. And this is treated by some of my uh, other colleagues at UC Irvine. And this is great that you mentioned Dr. Hamas because this actually connects with a previous podcast. So to hear about the story of how you two and how collaboration is so important 
to advance the field of lung cancer. So I really like that story, Dr. Wu, about how you connected with him. He was a little bit ahead, and now the two of you are leaders in the field. Yeah, I still remember the first general club he did was uh, Texotier versus or Dosi Texo versus Best Supportive Care, and that was uh, that was a JCU article. That was my first general club that uh, that the Balash uh, Balash did. So I follow his career too. I mean, he 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 his career. So his career is a little bit different. I stayed in the same place, and he has uh, moved a little bit more than I do. But yeah, he was a good he was a, he was a good mentor, and um, even though he was two years ahead of me in fellowship, and then we kept in touch, and, uh, and that was good. So as we get to know you a little bit better, we would love to learn how do you get involved with Alk Fusions? Where all of this started? What was the first encounter? Or like we have something here. So this is um, this is my forest gum moment. Um, we were, you know, we were. We were doing a lot of protocols, but one of them was a citinib in non-small cell lung cancer. So there was a Pfizer uh, compound at that time. Dr. Schiller was actually the, uh, I think, the first author in the eventual JCO article, uh, Dr. John Schiller. And we visited the La Jolla campus of Pfizer because a citinib was a run out of uh, La Jolla Pfizer at the time. And I was looking for a MET inhibitor because surprisingly, we I was going down into the aerodigestive tract into gastric cancer because we had lost one of the attendings. And since I trained with Dr. Dan Karp at, uh, at BI, um, that we, we were able to do some uh, GE junction. And I visited the team at La Jolla Pfizer and they introduced me to the uh, chrysotinate team. They were looking for phase. They were looking for the one more phase one site, and I proposed to them, "Hey, you know, you're you're in Korea, you in Australia, you are in Boston, New York, Chicago, Colorado, but uh, you don't have any site in the West Coast. So we were more than happy to enroll the patients. It was a very targeted therapy trial already. They were looking for MET amplification. They were looking for MET." mutations and so they they had Ravi Saujia as part of the uh, uh, trial uh, when he was at the University of Chicago and I think uh, both Colorado and MGH was able to do to do the uh, amplification and it was also very interesting that the PI at that time uh, was actually uh, Manish Patel, who was actually one year ahead of me in uh, residency at Duke. So he's now the um, gastric person at uh, the world-renowned gastric person. Uh, and uh, I think he moved from uh, MSKCC to a, to a Cornell, I think. But regardless, there was he was the PI uh, at that time. So it's a long history. Uh, because we got the chrysotinid trial, it was, at that time, Pfizer knew that uh, chrysotinib is an ARC inhibitor, but they weren't looking for it because we, we thought it's only in lymphoma and they were not interested in, quote-unquote, uh, heme malignancy. Uh, but on, only until midway through 2018 when 
MGH enrolled the first patient who, who is known to have uh, met uh, the off fusions, and they saw some uh, symptomatic res uh, response, and then then Costa enrolled the second patient, a BI, that they started that, yeah, this is interesting. And then, we, and then I started to listen, pay more attention to the uh, teleconference the first day afternoon, just like right now, which is like seven o'clock in Korea and uh, and six o'clock in Australia, and and started to realize that there is something big happening. Patients in Japan are flying to Korea to, to get treated because Professor Bang has the trial open in Seoul National and they did not. And Japan was the one, you know, as you know, Professor Mando discovered uh, art fusions. And so Japan was discovering a lot of art fusion uh, patients, but they don't have the drugs. So it was a long story, but you know, we were all young when 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 we were PIs. You know, Ross Cambridge came on, uh, Ben Solomon came on, uh, Alice came on, Ravi came on, and then uh, Greg Riley came on as the PI, and and, and I was the PI at uh, at uh, UCI. So it was very fortunate. It was all luck. It was ninety nine percent luck, and uh, that we got the phase one Chris Hortonic protocol without knowing. The, the the art fusion they ever existed and that was uh the rest is history as they say that is certainly a fascinating story particularly to know we know people for certain things like oh this is their you know one hit but we in your story i learned that you know other people were doing other things you know like ross and Alex Ajay was my mentor when I was at Mayo. So it's good to know how this story behind things that as a junior faculty, you know, I came in when Chrysotinib was already a thing. So thank you for sharing that with us. So as we learn about ALK fusions, you know, they're ALK fusion variants. But I think it would be good to discuss, you know, how the variants have helped us understand the unique characteristics of patients with ALK fusions. Doctor, why are the differences that you see clinically? For for example, we have a patient with all fusion, no small cell lung cancer, compared to other uh, mutations or, or none, for example. Yeah. So now that we know, uh, since two thousand and seven, we have about thirteen, fourteen years of experience. Um, so the, the study from the French intergroup and also from Ross Cambridge, uh, Colorado study. We know that the patients with out fusions uh, do very well with sequential use of uh, ALK uh, TKIs. The French intergroup, the median, you know, by the time they reported around, I think, 2017, the median survival is up to 90 months. And from the Colorado study, their median survival from the from the time of a stage four diagnosis is about 6.8 months. So they do very well. And the patients with ALK fusions um, uh, do very well with uh, with just two generations of ALK TKIs. And so we have to, when we treat this patient, we have to have a long-term view of 10 years. ALK fusions positive lung cancer is actually uh, do better than EGFR mutated lung cancer. So we have to tell the patients we are looking at 10 years. Uh, it's incumbent upon us the clinical investigator, the clinicians to do even better with more uh, generations of ALF, uh, ALF uh, TKIs. 
But we also have to be bear in mind that from uh, Alex Drillon's paper and Jesslyn's paper in JTO, uh, when they were comparing the, in, the cumulative incidence of brain metastasis, all our positive lung cancer has the highest incidence, cumulative incidence of brain metastasis. Uh, intermediate is red fusions, which is the main part of the uh, study. Uh, but uh, the, the figure in that paper clearly shows ALK is the worst. Red is in intermediate and ROS1 has at least the lowest incidence of the three in terms of CNS metastasis. So patients do very well, but they're always at risk of some uh, uh, CNS uh, relapse. So we have to be cognizant about that too. So it's very, it's also more common than we think. So initially we thought it's only three to 5%, but we can see uh, our positive lung cancer patients are almost, uh, uh, the more we screen, the more we find them. We support that we every podcast episode i think we talk about the importance of doing you know next gene sequencing and along those lines when you have a patient that has disease progression we are alk fusion do you usually prefer a biopsy at the site of progression and subsequent ngs yeah so we are very fortunate in the u.s uh, as you all, as you know uh, that we can use liquid biopsy and our liquid biopsy uh, either by foundation medicine or garden which are the two most common so are very good in detecting the uh, resistant mutations they also will detect the op, the op fusion variants i think that's uh, also important i prefer liquid biopsy first uh, it's very hard it's, it's more difficult to arrange for uh, a tumor biopsy now especially in covid they, they have to be tested for COVID. Uh, it's harder to arrange for uh, procedures still. Uh, and so patients don't like to go from one place to get COVID tested. And it's not as easy, but liquid biopsy is so easy. You draw the blood as part of the, part of the clinic visit and you, you get the results back five to seven days now. And so and if you can if you can find the resistant mutations, you almost don't even go back to the tumor biopsy at this point. So you are now with the pandemic implementing more the liquid biopsies. Do you notice a difference between you know the ALK variants that you may see in liquid biopsy versus tissue biopsies? So actually, no. I think I think uh, the liquid biopsy is very good. Uh, the tissue biopsy is. Uh, you know, still considered a gold standard. The liquid biopsy has fewer gene panels, but they, they detect all fusions as good as a, a tumor biopsy. And I think as we migrate to NGS as the way to detect all types of driver mutations, not just ALK, I think the fusion variance is very important. People realize that there are difference in the survival or outcome and treatment response by variance. And I hope the ne the next generation clinician like you can educate the patients and your fellows and other colleagues that you need to look for the variants. You can't just say this is our positive lung cancer, and and that this is a this is a much more a much more sophisticated disease that we need to understand. I think that's very important, you know, to continue to learn about the disease as we expose these patients to new agents, right? The, the new agent 
after the Alex study is alectinib. So how that changed compared to when we had crisotinib as a first line. And things continue to change for OCK. You know, we know that it's still one to two percent of patients, but there's a lot of therapies or more therapies compared to other no-small cell lung cancer with targeted therapy. And I'm going to link that to my next question to you. And is we just recently learned that lorlatinib was approved in the first line setting. And yes, it was compared with an older generation, you know, with crisotinib. But this study opened the door to the discussion about which compound it should be first line therapy. And we know there's something more than electinib and lorlatinib. But I would really would like to discuss with you your thoughts about this new approval all or latinib in the first line setting. So thank you. Um, so I don't know whether this is uh, this question. So thank you, and I will advertise our our editorial. So JTO has a new series of uh, pros and cons editorial, and uh, Dr. Misako Nakasaka and I wrote an editorial uh, that will come out in April. Uh, advocating that loratinib should be the preferred treatment. Uh, the one on the the uh, con side is Dr. Ross Kamich. We haven't read each other's editorial, um, but we we spent about ten revisions for our own editorial to to argue for the that loratinib should be the preferred choice uh, among all the next generation ORC inhibitors. We had six arguments. The first one is it has the best hazard ratio uh, for the intention to treat population. The best hazard ratio for um, patients with brain metastases. The best hazard ratio for patients without brain metastases. The tolerability is is actually not as bad as uh, what people say. And that the if you use Loratin upfront, you will not likely get the double mutations and the one mutations we expect should be covered by Alactinib. Uh, it's, uh, it's the A, it's all, uh, I think 1256 mutations, it's in editorial. So uh, we are pretty pro Loratinib. I think uh, the data speaks for itself. As long as you know how to manage the side effects of uh, Loratinib, I think it's, uh, it's uh, best in class drugs. The CNS control is exceptional. The progression rate is 2.8% in 12 months. So it's the lowest in terms of intracranial progression. And that's important because all positive lung cancer patients are young. They are very, they're in their early 50s. They are very productive uh, members of society. That's their peak earning times. And so you really need to cover the brain as much as you can and look for uh, survival beyond 10 years that uh, with with more uh, next generation ARC inhibitors coming out. And, and to backtrack to the variants, uh, we will, Dr. Sanjay Poppert has asked me to write a, a review on that, uh, even though it's a different journal, it's lung cancer, uh, but we're in the same community and the same Elsevier uh, publication. So, uh, we'll try to do a good job to try to adv advocate that you need to know your variants. If you're variant-free, the outcome is much, I think it's much more resistant to uh, ARC inhibitors than if you're variant-1. 
and we we see that in our own patients. So, so that's something that we should we should think about. And and Crown does not the loratinib phase three study has not looked at the variants yet, uh, but uh, we look forward to the publication. We also look forward to the publication of Ansartanib, which is also important uh, as they have been presented uh, to complete the the trials. But we we were we 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 took the pros position with uh, Dr. Misako Nakasaka and I. Uh, we did a lot of. Uh, because Ross Cambridge is a very formidable, I think, uh, clinician and uh, key opinion leader. So we, we want to make sure we cover what we what we think he's going to say on the con side. So you should you guys should uh, look look. Uh, hopefully, you guys will find it entertaining on the on the April issue. Well, I'm looking forward to that. I really love editorials when they show both sides, and I think as the crowd the ARC positive space, and I'm glad you mentioned Insartinib is getting more and more auctions. It's, it's good to hear, you know, the good and the bad. And as we talk about that, you know, Lorlatinib has acquired this reputation, particularly because the adverse events are a little bit different than many of the TKIs that we use. And, you know, that's in part due to the CNS penetrance. Like we're used to the TKIs, CFS for EGFR, but CNS tolerability with lorlatinib remains, you know, something that's concerning to medical oncologists. So based on your experience, how do you treat and monitor patients that have, you know, CNS tolerability issues with lorlatinib? So one of the things I, I always tell them before I start is, uh, as, as, as all oncologists, once you tell the patients the potential side effects, uh, they actually understand it and will will be more will be less concerning for them. So, my personal experience, loratinib the side effect is more common if if the patient has prior brain radiation. The the cognitive uh, impairment is more if if someone has either whole brain, most you know uh, whole brain, and sometimes with uh, stereotactic radiation. Uh, you 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 have more. They have more cognitive impairment. So you have to be very careful. Uh, maybe quick dose reduction uh, from 100 to 75 milligrams. Right now, I I have personally, you know, suggested to Pfizer that you know, Loratin comes as a 100 milligrams tablet or capsule, and they and they have 25 milligram capsule. They should you know, I try to write on Epic, you know, four times 25. I'm not sure that it got filled. They still come with 100 milligrams. And so they should have a schema like uh, a fatinib where you can dose reduction without having to switch off the pills. That's, I think that's step number one. You explain to the patients that you potentially will, those are the side effects. You get auditory hallucination. You can hear things. You can smell things. You can see things that may or may not be there. It's very strange and fascinating in some ways. Patients have more uh, slow speech, as Ross uh, has has mentioned a lot of meetings, but they also have uh, less impulse control. See, if you're in a high-stress work, you you try to be uh, not stressed or else you will say things that you regret. Uh, So that's that's something that I, I mentioned to the patients. And that has happened. One of my patients was uh, after they were on the loratinib, they more direct to their partners and they broke up. 
So that's something to consider. And the patient has not had my uh, brain radiation before. Um, once you know the side effects, um, it's easier for the patients to understand. And I bring them back in pretty quickly to, to monitor the side effects. The other side effects, such as high cholesterol, high lipids, they manifest within uh, first month. So they're time to uh, follow. There is the side effects of weight gain and, uh, and a swelling. So I do warn patients ahead of time, especially patients who are younger, they, do, they don't want to have all the you know, weight gain and all that. But once you understand the side effects, it's actually uh, loratinib is a pretty well-tolerated drug. Patients put up um, with a lot more side effects than, than the loratinib. And again, dose reduction is the key. And so if you can switch from 100, which unfortunately still is a, a tablet rather than uh, you have the patients take 425 in the very beginning so that once you reach a steady dose, you can go back. If the patients can tolerate 100, you, you do the 100 capsule. If the patients can tolerate 75, then you do free 25 milligram capsule. Uh, prior radiation with uh, in the brain is is has more side effects. So you have to be careful and maybe start at 75, but at least quick dose reduction. So that's the broad out, outline. And also one of the, what our, our uh, advertise our review. So uh, we had a review, you know, with Dr. Nakasaka and I on the user guide. So we listed about, we listed about 13 side effects that are very unique. And so I can, I, I point it to the patients. It's much easier, understandable than reading the trials such as, you know, cognitive impairment or mood disorder. It was very hard to, to, uh, to understand. Impulse control is one thing that I, I tell the patients, especially if they're still working full-time and in a high stress, you know, like in, in a faculty meeting, you really don't want to be on oratinib. Otherwise, you will say things that you regret in a similar situation. So those are the things to watch out for. And, and once they understand that, they, 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 they actually like it. I have patients who switch from alactinib to loratinib, and they actually feel that loratinib is much better tolerated. They they have they feel good. Uh, maybe that's the reason why they they have a good appetite. Maybe the reason why they have a weight gain. So those are things that come with experience, and it's very hard. I understand to read from the New England Journal paper. You know, mood mood impairment, uh, CNS impairment. Those are very hard to. Uh, to understand, but you have a specific examples which we have in the user guide, then then it's easier to understand for the patients. And I think it's very important what you mentioned is the patient education is very important. I have several patients that are lolatinib, I had good stories and some other unique stories. But I think if your patients are aware of the challenges, right? Like they get less scared you know, and particularly try to avoid unnecessary ER visits during COVID-19 times because, you know, you, you are worried about these CNS side effects are, are quite concerning. So along those lines, do you place patients in antilipic, like statins therapy, before they start lolatinib or you do it right after you see the cholesterol 
creeping up? Uh, I I try to do it uh, after, you know, it takes usually takes about uh, two to four weeks, so within a month before the lipid starts to creep up. Uh, the reason being that you have time, and also I don't want to overburden the patients with so many instructions. I want them to be able to get through the CNS side effect first, so they don't have to take like. Two different extra medicine: one for the cholesterol, one for the lipids. Um, so I wait until until they really go up uh, before they before I, I do it. I concentrate on the CNS uh, part of it to make sure that they they understand they you know if if they experience a specific situation that I mentioned to them, they say ah this is this is Loretta. this is not something from my disease and something like that. And so I do. I, um, you have time to manage the lipids uh, within a month. So I don't have. Otherwise, you'll be writing five or six different new medicines, giving giving instructions on how to do that, and it's it's overwhelming for the patients. So I try. I I don't do it on on the first two weeks of visit. And as we you know move forward in these patients, and you are pro lorlatin and been the first line. So what happens? Like, what is your algorithm after all target therapy has been exhausted? What is your next line of therapy for patients with ALK fusions? Um, so, and we are seeing this this type of patients now with uh, double mutations. I keep them on some some uh, next generation TKI, ALK TKI, to prevent the CNS uh, relapse. So. And I add chemotherapy. We have a retrospective uh, analysis with uh, with Dr. Jess, Jessica Lin at MGH that came out in uh, JTO, I think, two thousand and nineteen. That uh, I do, I do keep them with. Uh, I add chemo to the to the to the ALK inhibitors. I don't take the ALK inhibitors away uh, because I still think uh, they do play a role in preventing the CNS metastases, or at least I think. So I add chemo, and then depending on the specific resistance, if they have uh, on-target resistant mutations, such as two double mutations or, or two mutations, uh, I, I try to use chemotherapy. But this is this is getting tougher and tougher as patients live longer and longer. They will need the next generation of ALK inhibitors. So as we move to what is next, worse some of the exciting compounds that you see coming down the pipeline for ALK fusions? So one of them uh, is uh, TPX0131 uh, that Dr. Jessica Lin has mentioned at the uh, the uh, Santa Monica virtual meeting this year. The compound is going to clinical trial, phase one trial. We are opening up the trials. My colleague, Dr. Bialoso, will be the principal investigator so that's a fourth generation inhibitor that can uh, ALK inhibitor that can overcome uh, double mutations, especially the G1202R mutations plus uh, other resistant mutations. Another exciting compounds that are coming, I think, in 2022 is the New Valent compound. Um, they just uh, they announced their compound in their website 655, and so uh, those are the two that we are aware of. And of course, combinations. Uh, there are many combinations being tried uh, with SHIP2 inhibitor, with MAC inhibitor, and so those are the those are the 
combinations and the fourth generation inhibitors are the ones that uh, I think we we desperately need, and there's a there's a huge unmet need for patients uh, at this time. So as we talk about these compounds, I have a question, and and the question remains: immunother it is immunotherapy or immunotherapy now to the added chemotherapy? So are you adding immunotherapy regularly to these patients after disease progression? Um. I don't uh, because I keep the uh, the all TKIs on board, and the combination has the immunotherapy and all TKI has been challenging to say the least. You do have increased uh, autoimmune, you know, hepatitis and uh, and other hemolysis in patients who are younger, more fit. I do add, uh, I do use bevacizumab as part of the chemotherapy regimen. Uh, that depends on the on the um, on the patients, and so the chemotherapy agents includes uh, anti-angiogenic agent as as needed. I use bevacizumab in the in the first line setting uh, in terms of chemo, and I use the bevacizumab as the uh, as the second line as part of the docetaxel remsirumab uh, FDA-approved regimen. I don't use immunotherapy because I tend to keep the uh, TKI on board much more frequently in all positive lung cancer than, let's say, in the EGF mutated lung cancer, where I think you know you have a window of a few months that you can be off EGF or TKI and you can add the immunotherapy, especially if, if the future trials uh, show the benefit. But in all positive lung cancer, I, I don't. That's just my personal preference. And I think, you know, this is good to learn. You know, sometimes I have tried to do that, but I may encounter some uh, pushback for the insurance companies. So how had you managed to, you know, keep the ALK while starting other therapy? Had you bump into problems with insurance? And, you know, any advice for our listeners when they're trying to do that would be great. Well, there is there is definitely pushback, and and sometimes you get through. Uh, it depends on the insurance, uh, patient's insurance. Most of the time, they 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 don't they don't ask, and and so they would just approve it. Uh, it all depends on the on patients uh, on the type of insurance. So there is no. This is hard. I mean, we. We can sometimes, you know, we can you you know if they want some supportive uh, supporting evidence, you can, you can, uh, you know, we can use the uh, Dr. Jessica Lin's paper from JTO. That is one that I think is the only one that shows it's a retrospective analysis selection bias, but it shows that if you uh, maintain the uh, or at least maintain the TKI versus no TKI. The outcome is uh, better, but that's that's the only data we have at this point. We don't have any prospective data, but to show that uh, using chemo plus TKI is better. But I think I think uh, if you survey all the oncologists, they there's a tendency to just continue the uh, the TKI and add the chemo. Uh, Platinum pemetrexa is very easy to combine with a lot of the TKI, especially none of the all TKIs have myelosuppression as part of the uh, side effects profile. So it's uh, 
it's very well tolerated. And you know, with the exception of Insartan, they might have might have used chemo with all the TKIs, and so far they've been been uh, uh, tolerable and uh, it's doable. Well, thank you for sharing that with us. So we are coming almost to the end of our time together. But before we finish our conversation, Dr. Wu, what one pair of wisdom for our audience about treating alk fusions and lung cancer? So um, I think um, knowing the variants matters. So I know... We are very fortunate in the U.S. to use NGS to detect uh, our fusions. Uh, many places are still using the FISH and the IXC, but if at all possible, uh, knowing the variants up front is important. The short variants, like variant 3 and variant 5, are very resistant to uh, ARC TKIs, and patients do, do relapse pretty quickly compared to the longer version, which is variant one and variant two. It's not promoted by a lot of the farmers when they look at the data, the data is not there. The data is only looking at our fusion as a one unifying disease, but within that disease, there are a lot of, uh, a lot of variations. So if you know your, if you, if you, if you, if you're treating a patient with variant three, you have to be more alert. You say, this is, this is not good compared to if you have uh, patients in front of you who has variant one. Uh, variant one patients do very well, but variant three patients has a high risk of uh, developing acquired resistant mutations pretty quickly. If you look at the G1202R mutations, they're almost exclusively in the back background of variant free EML for variant free, the shorter version of it. So you have to be alert when you see that. Uh, otherwise, we have very good three generations of TKI and the fourth generation is coming. So we need to extend survival. So when you see a patient, you have to encourage them and, and it is incumbent upon us to extend the survival beyond what the French study uh, intergroup has demonstrated and Colorado group has demonstrated that now that we have more of TKIs, uh, we should strive for more than 10 years and beyond for all positive non-small cell lung cancer patients. And on that wonderful positive note, we are wrapping up this podcast. I would like to thank you, Dr. Wu, for your time, insights, and thank the audience for listening. Don't forget to like the podcast, to share it, with colleagues and friends, this is a very timely discussion. Lorlatinib was approved for first-line therapy. And second, Dr. Wu's editorial and JTO is coming up. So thank you for your time, doctor. Thank you, NJ. Thank you very much. Thanks to ESLAC for the invitations. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Lung Cancer Concert. You can find all our podcasts on our website, islc.org, in our newsroom, or on SoundCloud. Please take a moment to rank, like, write comments, and share your favorite episodes with your colleagues.